0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film
1: Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Hey, Josh, maybe just stay in the car.
0: Don't move! Cove No, 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 no! Compass, compass. Suelte la pistola. Tirela. Pregunta, paisanos. Quieren morir?
1: Which part of stay in the car didn't you understand? That was Benicio del Toro. I wanted his autograph. <laughs> you and your autograph collection. That was Benicio del Toro in Sicario, the new film starring Emily Blunt as a young FBI agent sent into battle against a Mexican drug cartel. Our review, plus the top five breaking up the boys club movies. That and more. Emily Blunt's got some really nice penmanship. Ahead on Film Spotting. once again pleased to be brought to you by Movie, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Josh, this first pick from the editors over at movie is just here to taunt me because it's been on my 2c list ever since allison wilmore named it her number one film of the film spotting era 2005 to 2014 at our 500th live show it is roy anderson's you the living and i wanted to catch up with the two for my crisis of faith class where we talked about some movies that were really just more existential in nature and about how you live your life how you exist in the world This movie certainly qualifies. I love movie's description. How to Describe You the Living, an epic comedy, the world's most whimsical nightmare, a jam session between Ingmar Bergman and Monty Python, touring society top, bottom, and side to side. It's an inventive, illuminating work of dour hilarity and one of the most acclaimed art house films of the last 10 years. It's also hard to get. It's not easy to come by. It's not streaming on Netflix or Hulu, last I checked. So if you want to see it, want to see what Allison's Fuss is all about, you got to check it out on Mubi. Also there, Marriage Italian Style. You have two icons here, one love affair, Sofia Loren, Marcello Mastriani. It's an Oscar-nominated hit from Italy that is at once a triumphant battle of the sexist comedy and a clever satire of gender politics. Another one I need to see, Josh, though— I can recommend Divorce Italian Style, a film I saw in an Italian cinema class I took many, many years ago. That one's got Mastriani as well, but with the wonderful Italian actress Stefania Sandrelli.
0: One of my favorites. Here's another movie pick, and it's one I can personally recommend, Post-Tenenbras Lux. It's Mexican director Carlos Regatas, who courts controversy in most of his films, especially here where he won Best Director at Cannes for this unsettling, unforgettable, brilliantly stylized drama about a family torn between the infernal and the divine. It really was one of the most divisive films to win a top prize at Cannes in recent memory. Cinema Without Rules, The Opening movie points out, especially as a stunner and when you start your movie with a glowing red demon creeping through a family's house as they sleep, yeah, that's going to catch your attention. I'm going to have nightmares now,
1: Josh. <laughs> Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for just $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline, and our listeners can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash Filmspotting to redeem now. That's movie.com slash Filmspotting. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in the show josh but if you're not already a movie member signing up so you can get a chance to see paul thomas anderson's upcoming film isn't a bad idea You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh, a show in which the irony will not be lost on us, a couple of dudes devoting a top five to breaking up the boys' club movies, or... How did you refer to it
0: this week on Twitter, Josh? Busting into the boys' room? Yeah. That's what happens when you're watching Monday Night Football, working on your top five, tweeting, and helping the fourth grader with their homework. I was a little... That was your multitasking. A little too much
1: multitasking for me. But pretty much what we have here this week, just the boys in the WBEZ studio holding out hope that Tasha Robinson and Dana Stevens will break through the soundproof glass and steal our mics. We'll wait for that to happen. Alas, it may not, so we will share our top five, plus
0: Massacre Theater and more, later in the show. But first, Emily Blunt more than held her own with Tom Cruise in Edge of Tomorrow. How does she manage Josh Brolin, Benicio Del Toro, and the other tough guys of Sicario? FBI! You want to be a part of this? Do we get an opportunity at the men responsible for? Men who are really responsible for today. Ever been to what is before. We're going to El Paso, right? You're not American. No. Then, what do you work for now?
1: Oh, I go where I'm sent.
0: Every day across that border, people are killed with his blessing. To find them no would be like covering a vaccine. Nothing will make sense to your American ears. In the end, you will understand. Spotter vehicle, left lane. Spotter vehicle, 9 o'clock. It, it weapon up. There's a devious irony to the imagery in Sicario, the galvanizing new drug war drama from director Denis Villeneuve with cinematography by Roger Deakins. The movie's blazing brightness, thanks to both the Arizona desert and governmental fluorescent lighting, as well as its frequent use of bird's-eye view angles, would seem to provide clarity and context, a way of seeing and understanding. But this is a film in which murkiness reigns, moral and otherwise. Uncertainty exists right from the start as FBI agent Kate Maser, played by Emily Blunt, raids a suburban Arizona home looking for hostages, only to discover something far more disturbing. Her professional handling of that situation draws the attention of shadowy governmental advisor Matt Graver, played by Josh Brolin, who recruits her for a covert operation in El Paso, Texas. Next thing she knows, she's on her way to Juarez, Mexico, with the even more mysterious Alejandro, Benicio del Toro here, as part of Graver's team. A few gunfights, some torture later, it isn't long before she begins to question exactly what goal it is that they're trying to achieve. Adam, we're basing this week's top five, breaking up the Boys Club movies, on the presence of Blunt's character. But one of the few criticisms I've seen of the film is that it ultimately fails to work both in this way and as an exploration of moral conflict. Commenting on my Letterboxd post about Sicario, listener Colin Stacey particularly complained about the way the final third drifts away from Blunt's point of view and gives itself over to that of another, notably male, character who undertakes a mission of revenge. Colin wrote this: Stealing the perspective wholly from Blunt's character renders her moral wrestling toothless and moot. I think the choice to switch POV seemed like an interesting idea, yet it defies the film's ambiguity. Sicario ends up delighting in the very things it seemed to be condemning at the outset. So Colin has two objections here. One relates to the way the only significant female character is sidelined, the other relates to the way this sidelining puts the focus not on ambiguity, but on cathartic revenge. Would you agree with either of these assessments? And if so, did either of them bother you? Well, speaking of murky, there's a lot of gray area
1: here in that setup to get into, Josh, which makes a response tough to articulate anyway. That's even tougher, though, when we're talking about largely the end of a movie. And, of course, we want to be careful not to spoil anything, and we will do our best here to do that. I have faith that, as usual here on the show, we'll be able to dance around the ending and any major spoilers while still Expressing some specific points. Do I agree with Colin? No. Did I wrestle with both of those points while watching the movie? And am I still to an extent wrestling with them? Yes, that's true. But I guess I ultimately see that as more of a plus for the movie than a problem. Probably safe to say. It's highly unlikely that the director set out to marginalize his protagonist and make his film less abstract or complex. And I say that just based on watching this film, though I could also factor in the two other Villeneuve films that I've seen, Enemy and Prisoners. Of course, regardless of his intentions, that is still exactly what he might have done. I think he tried and for the most part was successful in making this movie actually more challenging in that pov switch that colin brings up i kind of wish he was even bolder to be honest and it actually just switched it completely and abandoned blunt i think that might have been even more interesting and challenging if we never saw her again he doesn't go that far but you have to ask then why does he do it and i guess where i come out is that he pursues that angle as much as he does because he wants to raise some doubt about this notion of cathartic revenge. And this follows a little bit our conversation last week about Black Mass and glorifying criminals, whether you want to or not. They just kind of inevitably end up being cool on screen. Here, when you watch Del Toro or Brolin or some of these other soldiers here, you watch them expertly handle a really tense situation. That's immediately compelling. And by extension, that's often thrilling and cool. And Del Toro in particular here, not a spoiler really to say this is the character we follow, there at the end The way he handles the situation, it does have that element of cool and thrill to it. But, Josh, it's also marked by significant pain and a significant sense of loss and longing and futility, I think, most key, and also unforgivable brutality. There's one pause in particular during a bit of a showdown at the end of the film where it feels like the only reason it exists is for us as viewers to take a deep breath amidst those thrills and ponder the ramifications of what we know is inevitably about to happen. I think that's something very few revenge movies ever do, is give you that pause. Villeneuve isn't going to allow this movie to simply be a lone wolf heroine movie, to borrow some language that may come up again during our top five. I think for him to cover all the things he wanted to cover and present to
0: us, the ugliness we needed to see, we had to follow that character down that path. My take is pretty similar to yours, similar in also that I left the movie wrestling with a lot of those questions and maybe came out more on the side that you did in terms of that was the challenge I felt the movie wanted to give me, and it wasn't looking to really make me feel any sort of catharsis or have any answers mm-hmm. about this huge global situation that we're put in. Something like Soderbergh's Traffic, I think, maybe gives us a little bit, very different film in terms of style and what it wants to do, but maybe gives us a few more hooks to, to latch onto and say, okay, here's something that might be able to be done about the illegal drug. Trade. Here's something that seems pretty helpless. This movie is just a lament, a throwing up of your hands, and really putting us down in the mess and leaving us exhausted. Now, why did I not feel that it was cathartic? Del Toro has so much to do with that. I mean, this performance, it's so good to see him. For for some reason, I had a sense that he hasn't really been doing anything big in a long time. But when I looked at his filmography, he's been doing consistently steady work, maybe in smaller parts than when he first broke out from The Usual Suspects in the years after that. You love The Wolfman. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's where things started to kind of, you know, <laughs> you know Peter out a little bit, but here it's everything that's been so good about him, and it's in those layers in his face. Mm -hmm. How many actors have a face like that? Pause too. It's a pause, and it's a close up or a close up to medium shot on him. Yep, and and that's where the character he's built up. It's a supporting part, but through the running time of this film, where he's a mystery, but his emotions are real. So even though we don't know what his motivations are, we feel like we can trust his emotions. And that's true. He's not he is manipulating the blunt character, mm-hmm. but it's it's in a devilish way where he's being honest with her in the same moment that he's manipulating her. And I think the crux of this story is rooted and this is why it's okay that it shifts to him in this character of Alejandro because he's a force of justice and he's a force of evil. And that contrast is right there in del toro's face where there's something where his eyes that often have this liveliness or this brightness or this playfulness don't mask that sagging sadness which yeah, has only that's increased here. that's here in every frame and that's only increased as he's gotten older and and right, that you see it in his face and you feel it in every frame of this film mm-hmm. so i was okay with how it went that way and in terms of sidelining kate I really did find it daring. I found it illuminating. And like I said, I did find it challenging. I think it makes Kate's moral dilemma more complicated Mm -hmm. so that we are left wondering, well, was some good? Did some sort of good come out of this? And now how is she going to respond? Again, it's not a movie that's going to answer that question for
1: us. Well, and following that and this notion as well that you bring up in terms of just how pessimistic it is, how much of a lament it is, there is one aspect of Sicario... I'll say here that did leave a very sour taste in my mouth that I haven't gotten over quite yet. And maybe we can get into that. But without spoiling anything further again about the ending, her final moment, while utterly predictable and on its face, annoyingly passive, perhaps, I've actually come around to seeing it as much more provocative and profound in that her character makes a decision to act or not to act that does function as a direct rebuttal to the bit of cynical wisdom that she is told in the previous scene, that she is challenged with in the previous scene. It's also an answer to the larger question I think this entire movie raises, which is, what kind of person are you? What kind of person do you want to be and are you going to be? How will you affect change Compromising or not compromising yourself and your morality and your integrity if you do think it serves a greater good. And to go back to one of my pet obsessions, there's really a sense here watching this movie, Josh, that Villeneuve is exploring our capacity to rationalize and to tell ourselves certain narratives to justify our actions. Which is very much in prisoners, right? Of course it is. And it's an enemy as well to an extent, maybe a little bit more abstractly. But how many times does she find herself in a situation? That she knows isn 't right, or that she has some real reservations about, but as soon as she gets an answer, an answer that 's on its face satisfactory and also fits into her larger worldview about how she 's trying to do the right thing, she can immediately put that to the side, put her reservations aside she 's still a little bit skeptical, but she can move forward, and those things just keep piling on and piling on and A lot of people probably rightfully so have thought of this film, at least looking at the preview in the same terms we looked at a film like Zero Dark Thirty or you brought up Edge of Tomorrow, where blunt there is the ultimate badass character. And here, Kate not only certainly exhibits a lot more vulnerability than either of the characters in those films do, I actually do think this movie is closer to Prisoner's. An enemy than we might initially think. I'm not a big fan of Prisoners. That's a film I said on the show that I would never watch after seeing the trailer. Yeah, it's rough. Well, one night I couldn't avoid it. It was on and I couldn't sleep. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to force myself to watch this basically just out of curiosity. It really wasn't any kind of self punishment. It was the fact that I wanted to see where the movie was going to go. And it's a brutal watch and I don't think that rewarding. But you take that film, you take Enemy. A Much Better mind bender. I think that was just from last year. In my mind, A Better mind Mindbender that stars Jake Gyllenhaal. Those movies and this film are really identity crisis movies. This is an identity crisis movie dressed up as a drug cartel slash assassin movie. Over the course of two hours, we watch Kate get beaten and beaten down and tortured. She not literally, but emotionally psychically by the end of this film and there are a lot of shots where we see her looking into a mirror or staring down at the floor and we see her going through a replay of what she just witnessed and the effect that's had on her she almost becomes a split personality in the same way some of those characters in those other films i mentioned do she's torn apart by her obligation her commitment whatever oaths she's made and You get the idea that her entire sense of self is wrapped up in those things, in those oaths and her obligation and idealism. And this
0: operation completely fractures it. Blunt is quite strong in allowing us in on those moments because you're right. There are a lot of close ups of her in silence processing. And I felt that. Somehow, and this was, of course, also what Villeneuve does with the camera before that scene in putting us right with her, experiencing what she experienced. But when we're looking at her face, I felt like we were inside her head. The movie mm-hmm. very much... Put you there. I think her performance too is almost comparable, and you touched on this in terms of her getting beaten down. But it's comparable to Charlize Theron's in Mad Max Fury Road in that they both allow a certain vulnerability into the performance, even though they're surrounded by macho men. And sometimes in action films, the tack to take is well, match macho ness for female macho-ness and this movie doesn't do that it doesn't do that it's really it's similar to zero dark 30 in that it underplays her being the only woman in the room. frequently there's only one scene where it stood out and the movie doesn't do anything to really
1: highlight it but there is a moment when she's first brought into the operation and she comes in with josh brolin and del toro and there's Twenty-five other yeah, in guys the in the room in right. the warehouse, right? but no one really Getting remarks a on it. No, no and, one remarks and on so it. So that's the, we're aware of
0: it. We are definitely aware of it, and that's the approach it takes. But but what I especially like is, like Furiosa, there's a vulnerability to this character where it just gives us brings us a step closer to what her experience is, and it's almost more literal here because she is physically beaten down. There are two instances in this film where she's overpowered by a larger man. Yeah. And I think that does feed into the underlying politics at play in this film and the forces that she's up against and the limits that she's up against. And rather, again, than having her be able to take these guys down as Mm -hmm. well it really makes this a character that uh, we can feel that much closer to in what she's facing
1: in the story you're listening to film spotting we're discussing the new film sicario it opened in limited release a few weeks ago and then last weekend expanded a little bit it's now expanding in wide release you started off by talking about the visual strategy of this film and i didn't know that roger deacon shot it but of course having seen it that Isn't a surprise at all. He really is one of the best cinematographers working today. And I too am a fan of the pacing of this film, the shooting, the editing. There was very clearly a lot of care and precision that went into how this movie looks. But the trick is there are never really any shots that call attention to themselves either. During some night scenes at the end of the film, there's a big sequence that takes place at night, a big action sequence. And you're very aware there of the point of view and some of the choices that were made and the night vision and the visual strategy of that. Obviously, you can't help but be aware of it. But otherwise, the shooting isn't ostentatious at all. And even with the handheld camera work, it gets very close at times and it gets a little bit shaky at times. But the way it just moves in on the action, it heightens without distracting and wasn't trying to be a cinema verite type situation where it's ever trying to convince you that this is all unfolding for real there is still a little bit of a distance from it that i appreciated and i really noticed the emphasis in those aerial shots you mentioned the bird's eye view that we get a lot and the way we see these landscapes it struck me the homogeneity of it all there's something in the way Deacons and Villeneuve shoot Tucson at the beginning, or just outside of Tucson, and Juarez that seem so ominously the same. The houses, the buildings, the streets, it all seems overwhelming. And we cut from those shots to Blunt's face. Again, more of her face taking that all in. And this idea comes through very clear that it just appears to be so overwhelming that you will never be able to overcome all of this, all of this horror. And I think actually that irony there in the way everything seems so similar, so everything seems in a way safe from that bird's eye view, but we're hyper aware, as this movie shows us, of the horror that is bubbling underneath all of that sameness. And I think there might also be something about the way these locations all become a little bit blurred and indistinguishable from each other because of that, sameness that fits in nicely with the murky morality of the film the way at some point you really can't tell the good guys from the bad guys they're all after whatever they're after and they'll get it by whatever means necessary
0: yeah the the wilderness reigns that's what the aerial shots communicated to me that we just have this vast expanse of desert that is wild that can't be controlled and that is the dominating force in this film even as we're following along with the steps of the supposed law. There's a mm-hmm. great almost, there's nothing in this film that's routine. You mentioned how the finale with Kate could just be unsurprising, but the way it's handled puts you on edge. You could say the same of a very matter of fact shot of a plane taking off to reach a destination. It's almost stock footage in most films, right? Well, here we get that bird's eye view shot and it's of the camera flying over the desert again, and we just see in the tiny right-hand corner the shadow of the plane. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if here's the imprint of the law. This one tiny silhouette is all the impact they're making, what is dominating the wild. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's depressing and it's overwhelming. That's a good word for it. I liked the night vision sequence and the thermal vision sequence. They keep switching cameras during this one raid scene about two thirds of the way through because it does emphasize this disorientation that even though the law has all of these tools and knows where they're going and seems to be in charge, looking through that I had no idea what was going on. And I think that was the intent. I don't think it's a lack of skill on the filmmakers' part in using this technology. I think they purposely wanted us to feel... At at one point, I said, if I was on this team, I would take one of these things off because it's not helping me at all. I don't know who's who. And, And again, it was just more emphasizing this idea that we may think we know what's going on because of these technological tools or whatever superior American force we have. But in reality... We have no idea. No, I certainly don't think that that sequence at the end is as
1: effective or just well done or entertaining as the first big action set piece where they go and extract this drug boss. And we don't know that that's what they're doing. Even we're kept in the dark, just like Blunt's character is. And I think that helps add to the suspense and tension as well that's a very thrilling sequence that really isn't amped up as a big action sequence at all again it just kind of unfolds before our eyes and we're stuck in the midst of it and actually josh that night vision sequence only in retrospect bugged me because i started to notice that there were moments with kate's character that i think were only there because they needed to set up the fact that she was going to get lost a little bit and get separated because the movie needed her to get separated in order for certain other things to unfold and there was a certain clunkiness to that that bugged me but that doesn't bug me nearly as much as my real issue with this film and i wonder if you had a similar reaction there is a subplot if you can even call it that there's really a sub characterization where we get these little snippets of a policeman's Life. You didn't like that? Basically waking up in his town, probably Juarez. We're never really told what village it is. He wakes up. There are some really lovely interactions between the son, basically, who's always going in to wake his father up, who we start to piece together what he actually does. But he's a police officer. He clearly works at night. His relationship with his wife is very strained and I like some of those moments and the way the camera captures that but what becomes so clear Josh after really the second time we go to that is that that sequence only functions to come back to be tragic. It's so obvious and I felt like I was watching an Alejandro González and Yari 2 film. Something like Babel in the way he likes to construct these narratives where he's going to give us these characters who are really only there to manipulate us emotionally. And I didn't want that manipulation. And it didn't really affect me, actually, because I was so hyper-aware of its function in the movie. One of the
0: highlights of the film for me. Really, And maybe it's because I'm just dumb. I mean, I didn't really know where it was going until I had a full understanding of what his role was, his other role, aside from a police officer, we'll just leave it there. And that comes... I mean, there are like two or three forays into that family life before we are told that. And those scenes are... It's like everything else in this film. Villeneuve has this way of... It's a very patient camera. It slowly encroaches on action. And that just soaks us in. And I can see why you'd get sucked into prisoners again, because that's the way his movies tend to work. You you feel like something is happening, even if this family that you haven't been introduced to at all before is just having breakfast. So I immediately was tapped into that and it allowed for... Okay, so one other thing it does is it it opens up this story. It takes it well out of the realm of... A police thriller, a drug war thriller. That's what it's everything, trying to do. Everything else in so this movie I'm aware of that's what it's is, trying to do. Well, I, I don't the understand The same I don't way see a Michael that's...
1: Mann in Heat, for example, gives us these little character interactions and then they come back to factor in at the end. But it's it not ham
0: at all. It's, it's very... We disagree on that. The scenes themselves. That. I love
1: the scenes themselves, except I became
0: aware so early on that they were only there... To have, a well, payoff I mean, I, later. to have an emotional I guess if payoff later. I guess if you're simply aware of the purpose and you hold that against the film, that's one thing. But I was aware of the purpose eventually, and I was basically, at the beginning, glad that it was broadening the vision. So that we're stepping outside of mm-hmm. the genre routine, even though he makes the routine pretty compelling, too. But we're stepping outside. We're, we're getting on the, the street level of Mexico as this film presents it in that case. We're meeting people who are actually living with this in a area that has become essentially a war zone. I mean, that, that was one very revealing thing about the film. This this is essentially because these drug runners have taken over. This is essentially a war zone that the people here are living in. So we get that perspective and that sequence, maybe I'm just easily manipulated, but at the end, it's just a scene actually when we return to the son and the wife and something happens that we know because we've been right in the midst of what's happening in the background of that scene. We've been there firsthand. We've been there with Kate and we've been there with other people. Now we're suddenly seeing it from this mother and son's point of view, but it's just background. And there's something that's so, it it wasn't the tragic element of how it related to the father that got me. What really got me was how the people in that scene acknowledged what was happening a couple blocks away and then just turn around yeah and proceed and 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 that was kind of a you know a bow tie you don't want a bow tie moment that's sort of terrible like that but it did make this something that wasn't just happening in a film but felt at that point like it was happening in the real world Mm -hmm. there's a lot of what you just said that i agree
1: with but what I can't help feeling, what I can't shake is that feeling of emotional manipulation, a feeling like a filmmaker who otherwise opened up all of these sights and experiences that were completely foreign to me. He then fell right into this sort of ham-fisted Hollywood territory to introduce us to characters only to bludgeon us with what would inevitably happen to them. And I felt it was that inevitable. So I did find that problematic. Josh Brolin here, I just have to say in closing, he is so much fun. And that's not a surprise because I think he's a great actor. I really enjoy watching him on screen. The only problem with Brolin is it's the type of role I think by now he can do in his sleep. It's sort of it might be. It's sort of no country for old men mixed with the loose cannonness yeah, of no, what we saw in Inherent Vice. No country is a
0: lot more of a realistic performance, for I'd sure. say, than something like no, this. But that's
1: why I'm saying mix it with something off the handle completely like Inherent Vice, yeah, and yeah. you get the character we get here in this DOD advisor or whatever he is. It's still fun to watch, though.
0: I think what I like about, yeah, his persona and maybe he's not doing anything new here, but the filmmakers are using it a little bit differently here because it very much stands in contrast with Cade. And you could say this with a lot of the male characters, maybe not Alejandro. Here's why he's interesting, too. But a lot of these other guys are very jokey and brash and everything's like they're just going out for a night of poker, you know, the they're raiding, they're like illegally raiding I really like that a place in Mexico, yeah. but they're all going out as if they're playing poker that night. Kate has a completely different mentality. And this yeah. isn't necessarily a gender thing, but it is a way that makes her stand apart is that she is taking her job. I don't know if you could say more seriously, but differently seriously yes. than they are. Now, they lock down. And when things start to go down, then it's, you know, they get serious. And you can see how perhaps it's a form of stress release for them to act jokingly about it. But I do like using Brolin as a point of distinction, both in terms of approach and responsibility. Yeah.
1: Well, she isn't desensitized to it yet. And I do agree that that humor does cover that up a little bit. But at the same time, there's still a real professionalism and a matter-of-factness, even in the humor. There's, yeah, that's there's the word, matter-of-factness. Yeah, there's nothing yeah. unfocused about what they're doing. There's more a sense that we've done this a hundred times before, this is another job, and that professionalism that has to come through or else you simply won't survive comes through. I think this film captures that.
0: And I do like how she starts to adopt that when she relates to her partner, played by Daniel Kaluuya, Because he's even more skeptical than she is about this whole scheme they've gotten involved in. And he's not really as invited as she is into the scheme. And so when he questions her, she parrots back the answers that Brolin and those guys have given to her earlier and adopts that attitude a little bit. So uh, I like how Kaluuya's performance marks the transformation that Kate makes a little bit Mm -hmm. towards that other point of view. That's Sicario. Again, it
1: goes into wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at
0: filmspotting.net. Time for Massacre Theater when we come back. Talk about breaking up the boys' club. I'm gonna let Adam have the mail roll for once. <laughs> wow. Stay with us.
1: The Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeeds Alison
0: Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at FilmSpottingSVU.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hi, all you film spotting original recipe listeners, Alison Wilmore here from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast, where on our latest episode we take a look at the controversial 1975 film Mandingo and discuss whether it deserves the so-bad-it's-funny reputation it's managed to acquire, or the critical reappraisals it's gotten in recent years. And since we've both been busy on the fall festival circuit from Toronto to New York to Fantastic Fest in Austin, we'll talk about some of the most interesting films we've gotten to see in our travels. To listen, search for us in iTunes, or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. Hey Adam and Josh, Jason Eakin here out in Los Angeles. Well, there's so much wrong with your Black Mass review, uh, I can't get to all of it. Hopefully others will call or write in explaining why Depp and Edgerton are outstanding and subtle. Maybe someone else will explain to you the movie's expertly crafted structure. What I want to focus on is what sets the film apart, and to be clear... This film is nowhere as good as, say, The Departed or Goodfellas or The Godfather. A
1: little secret there, Josh, for any argument you ever get in, just cut the other person off before they really get into their good stuff. Do I have a button I can press (laughs) to do that to you? We'll work on that. Welcome back to Film Spotting. That was a longtime listener and friend of the show, Jason Eakin, all-around good guy. Jason Eakin to a young filmmaker out in L.A. Taking us to task for our review last week of Black Mass. It appears that Johnny Depp and Jason Eakin are the only people who are actually fans of this movie. So. You got that going for you, Jason. It does star Deb as Boston gangster Whitey Bulger. He went into great detail in his voicemail about what makes Black Mass so good and us so wrong. In this case, we will get into your take, Jason, at some point in bonus content. You can check out our bonus content if you have the Film Spotting app. You'll get to hear Jason's Boston accent if you you will listen as well. to that. Not as good as mine, mind <laughs> well, you, but well, but formidable. <laughs> that also serves as a reminder for us to share with you that if you have any good feedback whether you're taking us to task or not you don't have to send us an email you can leave us a voicemail we always look forward to featuring those here on the show our number 312-264-0744 we're going to play Massacre theater and give you an update on the battle royale the death match to end all death matches which we thought it would be alien versus blade runner and that poll in just a bit, but we do have a couple of notes to share with you. First, some more passes to give away, Josh, for our local Chicago listeners coming to the Music Box Drunk, Stoned, Brilliant Dead The Story of National Lampoon. That documentary is coming to that great theater. And on October 9th, they will have an opening night event. We have tickets to give away to that event. If you are interested, just go to filmspotting.net, and you'll find a link right there in our top stories. Also, some news that came out this week that a lot of listeners on Twitter and Facebook pointed out to us because they know about how much we love movie, the movie site, and also how much we love Paul Thomas Anderson. It turns out PTA's new film... A documentary called Jun Jun is going to have its exclusive world premiere on October 9th, the same date as that National Lampoon's doc, via MUBI. Were you aware of this at all? Not at all. Yeah. Completely off my radar, but of course I'm excited. It's a 54-minute film that documents Paul Thomas Anderson's composer collaborator johnny greenwood of course of radiohead fame and his three-week trip to india with an israeli composer they recorded an album also called jean which my notes here tell me means madness of love so keep an eye out for that we will link to more information about jean in our show notes over at filmspotting.net over at filmspotting.net that is where you can find our current poll question we began this little death match last week Thinking about Ridley Scott and his upcoming film The Martian, which we plan to review next week on the show, we thought that we would mark Scott's return to sci-fi by pitting against each other probably his two most beloved films and two films that fall into that sci-fi genre. So we gave you Alien vs. Blade Runner. You can only pick one. The other one is going to be destroyed forever. Nobody will ever see it. With almost a 1,000 votes cast already, Josh, as of this taping, there are only two votes separating them.
0: That's ridiculous. That is, and I haven't voted yet. Timer. Have you voted yet? I have voted. Oh, I've voted multiple times. You're not going to tell us till next week <laughs> what you chose. Well, I'll say this:
1: last week on the show, when we threw out this question, your gut was leaning Blade Runner. My you were gut leaning alien. was leaning Alien, and I'm still decidedly leaning Alien. That, okay, that is where I voted, even though Blade Runner. Has one of my all time favorite quotes in the history of movies, a quote that I actually suggested I might get a tattoo of one day. (laughs) There are no tattoos I'm going to get from Alien. But You're going to have to redo that tattoo <laughs> list, I think. I may have to. So we know you want to participate as tough as this death match is. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. We also have some information there and a link to my appearance on Peter Labuza's podcast, The Cinephiliacs. And I brought this up a month or so ago when I taped it with Peter on his trip to Chicago. It was a real thrill for me to get to do the show. It's a really good podcast where Peter talks to some really smart, insightful film critics and filmmakers. And as Peter has been a longtime listener of this show, I guess he felt an obligation when he came to Chicago (laughs) to have me on the show that did just go up. And after I mentioned it previously, we heard from some listeners saying, I'm looking for it. Where do I find it? Well, now it is out. And again, we'll put a link
0: to that as well in our show notes. And you guys get into some good stuff about film spotting history and its genesis stuff. I didn't even know about so yeah it's a good listen thank you i'm glad you appreciated it you probably
1: did learn something about the show over the course of that hour plus with peter and we do also get into one of my all-time favorite films that has come up only in some top five mentions over the years here on film spotting that's the world according to garp so Hopefully there are some GARP fans out there, and if they're not, maybe I converted a few. So quick diversion, Josh, but I couldn't resist. You know, I was a little bit late tonight because I came from a parent-teacher conference for my 11-year-old daughter, Sophie, and fitting for this episode all about breaking up the boys' club, when I started having children, I assumed that my oldest son, Holden, would be me, that... I would see a younger version of myself and I would get him to live out all my failed dreams and Mm -hmm. he'd be this ideal version of me. Never occurring to me that that version of me might actually be my daughter. (laughs) Well, that's what's happened. Holden is Sarah. Okay. Everything about his personality matches Sarah, including his his brain, just how it's wired and the subjects that interest him. Let's put it this way. He's not going to be a humanities major. Meanwhile, there's Sophie who has sadly started to take on sadly for her started to take on all my types of neuroses and poor kid has similar ambitions and is the one who, yeah, exactly is the one who this past summer went to the facets film camp and she wants to be a director. So Sophie and I have a lot in common and this may illustrate how much we have in common. Josh at the parent teacher conference, they are reading the Hobbit. (laughs) And (laughs) she's having a tough time getting through the Hobbit, isn't she? And, As they read it, they have to do these annotations. So they have sort of chapter seven in the title, and then next to it, a box so they can write down their notes. And the teacher is challenging them. They are supposed to think critically and really analyze the text, but there is room for their emotional gut reaction. So it's supposed to be a hybrid of those two things. And tonight, her teacher showed us her annotation for The Hobbit, and it starts out through the first five or six chapters like you'd hope it would. She's she's trying. She's really trying to get into it and to assess it. And then chapter seven, the box to the right just says this. I am done with this book.
0: What, what was and it, then, the singing?
1: Something about spiders. Chapter seven. Oh. And then chapter eight, I'm done. All caps. Oh, boy. And then chapter nine, it simply says, did I mention that I'm done with this book? So... <laughs> she's sarcastic and sassy and she can't get into tolkien any more than her old man could
0: so you guys aren't going to be sitting down for the uh, hobbit trilogy together i see <laughs> we are not oh well with that let's get on to massacre theater we perform a scene badly you get a chance at winning a prize last time we massacred this
1: oh that's nice look how you put the table isn't that interesting i saw it in a magazine oh my nice paint Oh, oh, that's nice. What is it? That? That's a TV room? Uh, well, only temporarily. It's going to be a nursery. Oh, you're pregnant? No, not yet. I hope to be as soon as we're settled. Wonderful. Well, you're young and healthy. I have lots of children. Uh, we plan to have three. I didn't see what you did to this apartment. The woman had it before was a dear friend of mine. I know. Terry told me. What oh, did she? You two had some long talks together in the laundry room. Only one. Oh, oh my God! Oh, it looks so much brighter. What do you pick a chair like
0: that? Oh, oh um,
1: I'm not sure, really. I think about
0: $200. That's Mia Farrow as Rosemary and oh, Ruth Gordon as Minnie in Rosemary's Baby, written and directed by Roman Polanski, based on the novel by Ira Levin. That memorable massacre was part of a show we
1: recorded a couple weeks back, episode 555, with a review of M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit and our top five house guest movies. Before getting into some listener feedback. Let's just hear a bit of what you did, Josh, with your Ruth Gordon impression.
0: Oh, that's nice. Look how you put the table. Now it's not interesting. I saw it in a <laughs> magazine. Oh, 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 oh my. Nice <laughs> well, we had some nice feedback on I, that. I can't tell a difference. No. Between me
1: and Ruth Gordon. in appearance either josh ed savoy in harrisonburg virginia says like adam i too love rosemary's baby imagine my surprise when ruth gordon's mini was replaced by a gypsy impersonator holding a seance (laughs) in any case the obvious connection is to your top five Rosemary and her husband are frequent dinner guests of the Castavets. However, since this alone may not meet your definition, I'll add that Rosemary and Guy's
0: last name is Woodhouse, making them quite literally house guests. Well played, Ed. No shots here from Jeff Schroek from Ocean Grove, New Jersey, who noted the same tie ins as Ed adding the Castavets are a grandparent esque couple who have dark secrets like the grandparents in the visit. Can't argue with that. We also heard from Neaton in. Hyderabad,
1: India, all the way from India. Rosemary's Baby is pretty much in the Top 10 Creepy Movies Hall of Fame, as is M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. Another tie-in I could think of is Directors Who Need a Comeback, Shyamalan to Relevance, and Polanski to the U.S. Smiley face there. Final tie-in is Adrian Brody from the highs of Polanski's The Pianist to the lows of Shyamalan's The Village, not to mention the straight-to-video disaster that was 2015's Dragonblade. So, noting a connection there,
0: neatness between Shyamalan's career and Adrian Brody's. Heard from Bianca in Queens, New York. In college, I wrote a paper for my film genres class on archetypes and used Rosemary's Baby as a primary influence and example. Congratulations on a more terrifying read of that scene than I ever anticipated it could be. All you, Josh. Chris Rowe in Santa Monica wrote in I don't know about
1: the rest of the world but here are some of the reviews from the alleys restaurants and basements of Santa Monica <laughs> with atypical naif innocence Mr. A. Kempinar subverts his bad boy persona in portraying a figure that at once becomes relatable and yet emotionally alienating in its lack of pseudo falsetto strangeness <laughs> juxtaposed with a scene that is all too strange we are used to being horrified by Kempinar's performances but we are not used to being so soothed by them ironically this makes his performance all the more horrifying as the audience must therefore question the supposed normality and abnormality of everything they have encountered thus far. That quote from Adam Solomon, a candidate for some postgraduate degree, Presumably. I'm glad we finally have a term for your female performances
0: pseudo falsetto <laughs> strangeness. That That's is perfect. my acting style in a nutshell. Another review here from the alleyways of Santa Monica. Josh Larson raises the stakes with his wild card interpretation of a Satanist. It's like the stakes are on the counter, and the audience is a group of children for whom those stakes will always be out of reach. What I mean is that I felt like a child who was hungry for steak. I'm hungry for steak. May I order steak, please? (laughs) That's Dylan Weathers, a TGI Friday's customer. Nicely done, Chris. Finally,
1: Kagan Breitenbach wrote in and said that he's been putting together a concert of horror film music for String Quartet in his home state of Utah. It's called Quartet Macabre, and the lullaby from Rosemary's Baby, sung by Mia Farrow in the film, is part of the program. Kagan was wondering if there was any chance he could have the event plugged on the show. He knows there are a lot of film spotting listeners in Utah, and he'd love to give away some free passes to anyone interested. All ticket sales from the concert go directly to the Salt Lake Film Society, a nonprofit that runs their local art house theater. So I couldn't resist the tie in there, Josh. We have to give some love to Kagan's event. Again, Quartet Macabre coming up Wednesday, October 7th at the Historic Tower Theater. Some of the other arrangements include Bernard Herrmann's Psycho, John Williams' Jaws, and Charles Bernstein's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Great idea.
0: That sounds more terrifying to attend than to watch rosemary's baby
1: we'll include a link to that event in our show notes at filmspotting.net after all that let's go ahead and reach into the fairly brimming film spotting hat
0: and pick out this week's winner the winner is laura die from delaware some just somewhere in just Delaware. Delaware. Yeah. She didn't it's want a to small get specific. State.
1: Are there towns? Are there actually cities in Delaware? Congratulations, Laura. I think Laura, if I remember correctly, had a great little jab as well. She said that she was sure that was from Rosemary's Baby performed, of course, by goats. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which well, I think that's what you were channeling. Yeah, I did study all those YouTube videos of screaming goats yeah. beforehand. It must have, it uh, must have influenced me. Congratulations again, Laura. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very
1: own Film Spotting t shirt. It's a scene, man. Memorize it. <laughs> what? Look, man, an undercover cops got to be Marlon Brando, right? To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell. Naturalistic as hell, probably not going <laughs> to apply to this. Round of massacre theater, the rare dual funny voices edition of
0: massacre theater. Yeah, mine. I gotta underplay mine. Yeah, it's not. No, I'm just gonna be true to the scene. You forgot your mandate here (laughs) on film spotting. Going to
1: be true to the text, Adam. Yeah, that's that's what I'm hoping for, Josh. (laughs) Tie-ins abound between this scene and the topics we are discussing on this week's show. We're not going to give you any more hints, but I'll tell you my biggest problem with massacre theater it's of course that i can't act but after that it's that sometimes i get so excited to play certain roles that i get too amped up and then it's time
0: to deliver and i just can't bring it hmm are you are you worried that's going to happen i am worried that's going to happen this is a pretty specific performance exactly
1: is that fair to say about this (laughs) and i can't bring my pseudo falsetto strange no 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 you can't rely on that i could (laughs) don't do that (laughs) okay Ready or not, here we come, Josh. you started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready?: Yes.
0: And action. Your name is Oh, uh, Jack Gordon. Mr. Gordon, good. Uh well, Frederica used to work for Mrs. Lippman. Did you know her?: No. Uh-uh. Oh,
1: wait. Was she a great, big, fat person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Mhm. <clears throat> Yeah, she was a big girl, sir.
1: Yeah, I may have. No, I read about her in the newspaper. Um, Mrs. Lipman had a son. Maybe he could help. I got his card in here someplace. You want to come in while I look for it? May I?
0: Yes, please. Are you close to catching somebody, you think? Yes, we may be. Did you... take over this place after Mrs. Lippman died, is that right? Yeah, I, I bought this house... Two years ago. Did she leave any records? Any business records? Tax forms? Lists of employees? No.
1: Nothing like that at
0: all. Say, does
1: the FBI learn something? The police around here don't seem to have the first clue. I mean, have you got like a description? Fingerprints? Anything like that?
0: No. No, I don't. And (laughs) scene. scene... The first laugh was not supposed to be it, of no. yours. The second one was. No. It's, so. it's not supposed to be a funny scene, but it's <laughs> that, up there. That was a great Sling Blade you were doing. I knew you were going to say that. You felt Sling oh, Blade, yeah, didn't I you? Oh, I felt it. I was really
1: channeling <laughs> Sling Blade. The movie is not Sling Blade, so... You can stop typing your emails now. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 12th. It took
0: almost two weeks for us to get through that scene. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. All right, enough of that nonsense. Let's give a more fitting nod to female performances with this week's Film Spotting Top 5, Breaking Up the Boys Club movie. Stay with us
1: Quick interruption as we do want to take a moment to get to donations and a few thank yous, but also highlight our featured artists this week. Appropriate to this show on two fronts, Josh, you have a female band in La Bucharetz, and they are also from Guadalajara, Mexico. I see what Sam did there. There you go. Songs from their new album, A Raw Youth. More information is available at laboucherette's.net. Some donors we want to thank this week include Peter in Boise, Idaho, Alex V. in
0: Philadelphia and Kate in Brooklyn. Hi, guys. I knew I had to donate when I heard Josh's breathless warbling in Massacre Theater. You guys keep me so entertained and I love your chemistry together. By the way, I totally support you guys in using a whole nother level. Thank you, Kate. A new
1: $5 a month donor is Henry in Vyborg. Denmark, and we have a new silver club donation that comes to us from brian and in valparaiso indiana i think brian is a longtime supporter of film spotting thank you brian we also have a new gold level donation we'll close with this note from marius in zurich switzerland
0: Belated happy birthday Adam, Josh, has the show really been around for more than 10 years? I think Maria's missed some episodes, maybe. (laughs) Did I miss an anniversary announcement or even a party with cake and candles? We did something like that. In September 2005, 10 years ago, I spent some time in Philly as an exchange student. For my commutes, I got an iPod Nano, which had just come out, and discovered podcasts. Cinecast was not only my first, but for a long time, the only podcast I downloaded regularly. Back then, I only needed a few weeks to catch up with your back catalog. Hey, wasn't the show bi-weekly in those days? Bite your tongue. Today, I track three podcasts, but Film Spotting is the only I haven't missed a single episode of and this since inception. Ten years are a long, long time. I turned from student to entrepreneur and father of three, and when I had realized how long I had been listening to you guys, pangs of remorse overcame me. I have donated before, but I still feel like a free rider. The attached donation still doesn't get me close to the Bucket Show benchmark, which I consider the absolute minimum a listener owes you for the tremendous work you put in on a weekly basis. But hey, didn't Adam just say we still have many years to do this show on the most recent episode? I hope you guys live up to this commitment so that I have a fair chance to live up to the Bucca Show promise. Well, thank you very much, Maria's A kind note and a kind donation.
1: Thank you for sticking with us. Thanks to all of our listeners who have stuck with us over 10 years or maybe just 10 months. And thanks for sending some of your hard-earned cash our way in support of the show. It does keep us doing what we're doing. Hi, this is Lynn Shelton, director of Hump Day and your sister's sister. You are listening to Film Spotting. With Emily Blunt going to war with a Mexican drug cartel, it was the least we could do, we thought. Devote to a top five to breaking up the boys' club movies. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Our very own little boys' club here, Josh. I think this topic from that long title one of our longer titles is pretty self-explanatory. Did you really have to go through any machinations to
0: come up with a criteria or to define this list? Not too much. I took a cue from Sicario. We talked about how it subtly handled the gender concerns with Blunt's character being the only woman in most of the scenes, really, but didn't make too much of an issue of that or Mm -hmm. turn her into some sort of feminine warrior. And so I didn't want this to be strictly a list of action heroines. I think Sicario avoids that so I tried to avoid that too. That's pretty much about it. Okay, we're on the same page. What's your number 5? Number 5 is The Grandmaster. This was a great suggestion that came from a listener on Twitter, Miranda R714. And if I didn't think of it right away, maybe that's because it is something of a secondary element to this movie, which I wish had actually gotten more attention. I think I would have liked The Grandmaster more if it had spent more time on this. This is the Wong Kar-wai film from 2013. It's a biopic of a legendary martial arts master, Ip Mun. And this exists in a variety of cuts, some of which are supposedly more generous to the figure that I'm thinking of for this list, Gong Er, played by Zhang Ziyi. Gong Er is the daughter of a master from the North, and her father's looking for a successor. He's looking for a man, naturally, even though Gong Er proves repeatedly to be worthy herself. In fact, my favorite sequences in the film, I think, are the martial arts showdowns that prove just that. There's one against Yip Man, played by Tony Leung, that takes place on a staircase. Fantastic scene. And then there's another one against her father's sniveling appointed successor at a train station. I still need to get a look at the Chinese cut of The Grandmaster. That's the one that gives Gong Er more screen time, or so I've heard. If I had seen that, I might have the Grandmaster higher on this list. Yeah, I saw that suggestion on
1: Twitter as well. Otherwise, would have completely overlooked it. And that Zhang Yi performance is so good. And that character, so fascinating that it's an honorable mention for me. And I say that because I think I would have enjoyed the movie a lot more as well if it had devoted more time to that character. And also, perhaps, if we saw a different cut, it does feel... A little too chopped up, unfortunately, the version we saw, but a good pick. My number five is a movie I don't think has come up on this show at all, unless you've mentioned it, Josh, and I've overlooked it since Sam and I did our screwball comedy marathon many years ago. Also, neat little bit of trivia. I had no idea until I looked this up today. Ruth Gordon of Massacre Theater Rosemary's Baby Fame co-wrote this movie. It's Adam's Rib, starring Spencer Tracy and Katherine Hepburn. All of my picks as we get into them, the clubs are going to be more narrowly defined. Set professions or industries that are heavily dominated that our female protagonist comes into. This is not so narrowly defined. I really think the target here is society at large. And that's the reason I like this pick here at number five. The basic plot is that a woman goes to shoot her husband because she suspects rightfully that he's having an affair with another woman and she gets so angry she fires at him a couple of times and does hit him but only wounds him doesn't kill him and then we cut to adam and amanda tracy and hepburn they're reading about it in the newspaper and they start arguing about it because inevitably it seems amanda sympathizes with the woman figuring that she was poorly treated and that the guy had it coming and her husband a little bit more of a stickler for the law and perhaps defending his gender as well, takes the complete opposing view.
0: Hot dog. What? What? Wait a second. What is it? Woman shot her husband. (sighs) Kill him? Wait a second. I think she, uh... Let's see. Nope, nope. That's a shame. Condition critical, though. Mm, hmm. Congratulations. Wow. What? Wait a second. What is it? Oh, find it in yours. It isn't in here. He was playing her fast and loose, so she caught him out and popped him a few thirty-two calibers. Who?
1: <coughs> this lady, this lady I've been telling you some about. Some lady, some lady. Serves him right, the little two-timer.
0: Mm-mm. Says he 5'11 weigh 180, some little.
1: Little in spirit, I mean, of course, little yes, in
0: spirit. I don't approve of people rushing around carrying loaded revolvers. We'll on who they're rushing...
1: He gets assigned to the case as a prosecutor. His wife, also a lawyer, decides just for the sake of women everywhere and to make a point, she's going to defend the woman. Really funny movie with great line deliveries from Tracy and Hepburn. There's one bit where Hepburn is talking to a family friend, a neighbor played by david wayne and she says now you look here kip i'm fighting my prejudices but it's clear that you're behaving like like well i'd hate to put it this way like a man and he says you watch your language but (laughs) the club as i said is really society and she asks the jury at one point to judge this case as you would if the sexes were reversed so that's really what she's out to do even more than maybe win the case is just get people to kind of completely reframe their view of gender roles in society because it's screwball comedy it feels like it but it's not always so shrill and i like that there are these ebbs and flows where we get to wind down a little bit with this couple and catch our breath as they do the same you could look at it as well as the amanda bonner character sort of breaking up the boys club of the law largely we see that being defined by men as the lawyers and the judges but again she has a much grander endeavor in mind and the movie does make you think while also
0: make you laugh adam's rib i do like adam's rib you can't go wrong with that hepburn tracy chemistry it's been a while since i saw it and my memory is it was a little strident maybe in some parts for my taste but uh yeah a good pick for this list for sure i went with fargo at number four and francis mcdormand's marge gunderson hmm. it's hard to think of her she didn't come immediately to mind because I don't think of her as breaking into the boys club she's such a stolid capable comfortable figure it's almost as if she was there first Mm -hmm. that she's just always been there Marge is the police chief at the center of Joel and Ethan Cohen's 1996 crime drama she's investigating this kidnapping scheme That's gone wrong, and it leads to Minnesota car salesman Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy. Marge's interrogation scenes are really delightful. She's partial to that folksy style of Columbo, and it's great fun watching Macy splutter about during them. We both had him as one of our inept criminals on episode 424, Adam. In one of those scenes, Lundegaard has this really condescending tone. He starts, in his panic, he starts to turn condescending with Marge. And it's hard to imagine he'd take that tone if this was a male officer doing the questioning or if he wasn't in the supposedly manly business of selling cars. Yeah, I see. So, how do you... Have you done any kind of inventory recently? The car's not from our lot, ma'am. But how do you know that for sure without doing a...
1: Well, I would know. I'm the executive sales manager. Yeah, but I understand. We run a pretty tight ship here. I know,
0: but well, how, how do they establish that, sir? I mean, are the cars counted daily, or what kind of a routine here?
1: Ma'am, I answered your question. I'm sorry, sir? Ma'am, I answered your question. I answered the darn... I'm cooperating here, and there, there's no... Uh... Sir... You have no call to get snippy with me. I'm just doing my job here. It's a really good pick. I love that character. I love the film. But for the reasons you perfectly articulated, I didn't think of her at all. For this top five as someone who is really breaking anything up but i do think that she does absolutely qualify my number four is zero dark 30 the most recent movie on my list and there are a few other women in this film jennifer ely plays a fairly key role but jessica chastain of course is maya this aggregate of some other real cia analysts in her hunt to find bin laden I went back to my review notes and you just look through some of the characters in the cast. After you get past Ely and Chastain, you've got Mark Strong, Kyle Chandler, Edgar Ramirez, James Gandolfini, Stephen Delane, Joel Edgerton, Chris Pratt, Mark Duplass appears. Jason Clarke is here in a key role. And of course, then later we meet all these Navy SEALs. So this is a lot of macho in this film. And you have Chastain really at the core of it. It's interesting, though. Despite that character seeming like one who I think we would all initially assume is a fairly strong feminist character, similar to with Mad Max Fury Road, where there's a little bit of debate about Charlize Theron and some of the other women in that film, it's certainly not unanimous in how a lot of people women in particular view Chastain's Maya. And I went back and read this article from New York magazine called zero dark 30 and the problem with lone wolf heroines. And I think it does make a pretty compelling argument that we've seen this same type of sexless friendless character before To quote from the article, it's the much-praised signature of Aliens and Terminator directed by the ex-Mr. Bigelow. Of course, Catherine Bigelow made Zero Dark Thirty. The ex is James Cameron. But those characterizations are the stuff of sci-fi, not as this film's title card reads based on firsthand accounts of actual events. Reality, for once, is more feminist than this based on real-life fiction. It's not a lone badass woman marshalling wits against terror, but a whole damn battalion. That's a true story I'd like to see told, this author said. And the real key point that they make that I think is worth discussing is that as much as this movie, I think you noted this during our review of Sicario, as much as this film doesn't overtly draw attention to her status as a woman when she's around all these men, that actually could be part of the problem. She's so isolated and alone. She's so rarely around anyone else that there aren't really any gender dynamics at play because that would interfere with this larger myth of the lone wolf heroine. And so in reappropriating that myth. We've usually seen the lone wolf hero, the male protagonist in so many action films and westerns. Reappropriating that seems maybe to be something pro-feminist, but is it really? That's at least what this question asks. Still, I love the film. I think that Question that I'm raising that this article raises is something that is worth discussing around the film, but doesn't detract from the overall quality of the film. And certainly, Maya was one of the first characters I thought of when putting together this list. This guy's a freelancer working off the internet. No one's even talked to Bin Laden in four years. He's out of the game. He may well even be dead. He might as well be dead. But you know what you're doing? You're chasing a
0: ghost network goes all around you you just want me to nail some low-level mullah crackadola so you can check that box on your resume that says while you were in pakistan you got a real terrorist but the truth is you don't understand pakistan and you don't know al-qaeda either give me the team i need to follow this lead or the other thing you're going to have on your resume is being the first station chief to be called before a congressional committee for subverting the efforts to capture or kill bin laden one of the interesting things about Chastain's performance in that film is that she does seem to try to mimic the macho-ness. Right. And, and that was a, a barrier for me initially, where she's barking, making these claims about I'm gonna get bin Laden. Right. And of all people, the ethereal Jessica Chastain to do that. It 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 made me think this is just not working until I realized, well, Maya is trying to fit in by matching them. And we talked about that in our Sicario review, how the blunt character, Kate, has a very different approach where she doesn't match the men's casualness or jocularity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing that's different about the two films, because there's so much where they are similar in good ways, I think, but that if Maya is sexless, I don't know that that's such a problem for me. But if she is, I really liked how Sicario allows Kate to have a moment of sexuality and how that not only helps develop her as a character, mm-hmm. but is interwoven with this larger narrative that yep. she's a part of too. I think that's a really strong and, and really unsettling sequence in Sicario. I agree. You're number three, Josh. All right. Number three is Aaron Brockovich. This is Steven Soderbergh's star vehicle for Julia Roberts. She played the real life single mother who led a legal battle against a polluting corporation. Aaron Brockovich is... Maybe more about class than gender, you could say. It does remind me of the way Soderbergh's Magic Mike was also very much a movie about class distinctions. We talked about that when we reviewed it here on the show. But absolutely, gender does come into play in Erin Brockovich in barging her way into places where someone with maybe her educational background or her income might not usually be, Brockovich inevitably finds herself increasingly surrounded by privileged men. We've talked about some movies where breaking into the boys' club element is subtly underplayed, Zero Dark Thirty, your previous pick, and Sicario as well. Sometimes, though, It can be fun to watch an actress really crash the party and just let the smug men have it. And Mm -hmm. there are a number of scenes in Aaron Brockovich where we do get to see Julia Roberts do that. It's a great star performance. It's a blast to watch. My number three goes back to
1: 1939, the Howard Hawks film, Only Angels Have Wings. And... It's been a while since I've seen it, so I was watching some clips today on YouTube and I watched the trailer, which sets the movie up this
0: way. This is Barranca, a South American banana port where men live by their daring and women by their charm. Out of the fog steps a girl with a questionable past and a devil-may-care future. Out of the clouds drops a man with a propeller blade for a heart and an expert's eye for a pretty face.
1: So set in Baranka, and I love how it explains that this is a banana port where men live by their bearing and women by their charm. Right there, sets up the distinctions, the gender distinctions here, and how everyone fits into a certain role. The mention of bearing is a reference to the fact that Most of the people we meet in the movie, the men are pilots. Cary Grant is a pilot and he manages this small air service. And the movie does very much like a lot of Hawks films deal with professionalism, the professionalism of these pilots who are all men. And then Jean Arthur shows up and she's an entertainer, Bonnie, who does become attracted to Cary Grant and decides to stay on. I mentioned how that gender role line is really neatly set up by that trailer and by the film. She blurs that line. She's not a pilot herself, but she doesn't just sit by silently either. And I hate to rely on that phrase, the strong female character, but Arthur here certainly falls into the Rosalind Russell, his girl Friday category of heroine who can take it and can dish it out as well as any man can. And she does want to be with a man, but she's not going to sacrifice her identity or her integrity to do so. There is a wonderful, intense action sequence to this film that obviously involves flying and a dangerous mission that Grant can't take for himself because of something actually Arthur does to him. And as I mentioned, I haven't seen it for a while, so I can't remember if this is totally true. But my recollection of this sequence, Josh, is that you don't see much of the flying. The camera stays with Grant and with Bonnie and their communication through radio with the pilot. And maybe because we have to use our imagination so much, we feel as unin control as they do. And that all just heightens the tension This movie also has one of the, I think, all-time great endings, too. And I don't mean great ending in the sense that you get some grand, dramatic flourish, but the nobody's perfect type of ending to some like it hot, where it's just a wonderful small moment that closes the story while leaving much more open to possibility. Again, we get to use our imagination a little bit about where the story is going to go. And it's just the right little moment between these characters. It completely sums up who this man and this woman are.
0: I'm glad you're balancing my relatively recent picks out with some classics here. I looked at my list and seeing that none of them go back too far. Aliens, my number three, is maybe my oldest film on the list. It was tough to choose between this and Alien, considering Sigourney Weaver's Ellen Ripley is outnumbered by men in both of them. But I did go with James Cameron's Aliens because of the military aspect, mainly. She's embedded here with a marine unit that's mostly made of men, not completely, but mostly. And she also has to contend with Paul Reiser's slime. Corporate representative. I said at the top that I wanted to consider more than just action heroines, but I think this is the place to make an exception for a couple of reasons. Ripley, she's maybe the foundational action heroine in many ways. She's certainly one of the first. And she's not simply mimicking the men here right from the opening frame. It's necessity that forces her to pick up the guns, essentially, which she does prove to be adept at. Now, Aliens, as opposed to Alien, I think is much more attentive to issues of gender as well, with Ripley mothering the abandoned child they find, Newt, and also facing off against another mother, the Alien Queen. Mm -hmm. I really like that twist here, that this manly movie climaxes with a female showdown. Yeah, Aliens is so good. My number two
1: is a movie that should be in the Pantheon, and I'm guessing that longtime listeners will hear this and assume that it is in the Pantheon, even though it really hasn't been included in top fives much over the years, despite my unabashed love for it. The movie is Network. The character is Diana Christensen, fade Dunaway, in the Sydney Lamette directed movie Patty Chayefsky's script. I don't want to play butch boss for people. But when I took over this department, it had the worst programming record in television history. This network hasn't one show in the top 20. This network is an industry joke. And we better start putting together one winner for next September. I want a show developed based on the activities of a terrorist group, Joseph Stalin and his merry band of Bolsheviks. I want ideas from you people. That is what you're paid for. This is the world of network television, of network news. You look at any of the office scenes in the movie, the women that we do see are usually secretaries. The anchors are men. The producers are men. The executives are men. And... Neither Chayefsky nor Lamette do much to call attention to gender in the movie. Diana simply is in charge. She behaves however she wants to. She doesn't ask for permission. Nobody questions her right to want whatever it is she's after. But that doesn't mean, similar to what I was saying with Zero Dark Thirty, this was a role that was universally lauded as... Feminist. She actually took a lot of grief. Lamette and Chayefsky took a lot of grief for the Diana character. Pauline Kael, in fact, said this of Chayefsky in interviews. He actually claims that he has created one of the few movie roles in which a woman is treated as an equal. This can be interpreted to mean that he thinks women who want equality are ditzy little twitches, ruthless, no souled monsters who take men's jobs away from them. So there is this dichotomy at work here in the Diana character where she's ambitious and ruthless and has all these traits that are usually assigned to men, but does that necessarily make her a good female character, or is it in fact actually Chayefsky reflecting some of his own misogyny? And he certainly had a complicated relationship with women, having read the David Itzkoff book about the making of Network at the same time, you have critics like Stephen Farber who say that the triumph of the movie is Diana Christensen and that he's created the best woman character in an American movie in years, a power-hungry executive who is capable of competing with the men on their own terrain and outsmarting them. The irony is that feminists who have been pleading for just this kind of heroine may be uncomfortable with Diana because she strikes a little too close to home. Farver says feminists seem to prefer a heroine who's either an abused victim as in a woman under the influence or a spunky good hearted earth mother as in Alice doesn't live here anymore. And he compares the scheming Diana to someone like Barbara Stanwyck or Betty Davis in some of those old roles. So I bring all of this up to point out that I think there's still a really fruitful debate that you can have about Diana and about a lot of the topics and characterizations that
0: we get in network. I adore the movie, and it's my number two. Boy, that pick makes me wish we could include cable dramas because it makes me think that Elizabeth Moss's Peggy Olsen from Mad Men perfectly would be a fit for this list and works in a lot of the ways you were talking about there with Network. Instead, at number one, I went with Offside. This is a gem from our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon, Jafar Panahi's gentle dismantling, I'd say, of the silliness of the patriarchal structures of Iranian society. Where does he set his social commentary? The world of sports, where patriarchy still has a tight grip. It follows a handful of women who have dressed in disguise and snuck into a critical 2006 soccer match between Iran and Bahrain. Women aren't allowed at all here. And these early scenes where they're sneaking in, they are worrying when the women willingly enter into this maw of blustery masculinity that is a sports stadium, you fear for their safety. It gets a a little tense there at the start. But what's really clever is how Panahi doesn't offer up a harangue, but instead exposes the nonsensical idea of separating men and women by creating these gentle scenes of camaraderie. And that shows that there's nothing to fear from these sorts of interactions. One example from the film, that's pretty much how it proceeds, is a series of situations like this. The one example I'll throw out there is early on, after the women have been caught and they're detained, one of them is being chaperoned by a soldier from the stadium's gates to this pen, and they're going along this long flight of outdoor stairs. They're alone. It's just the two of them for most of the way. And I remember thinking, you know, fearing the worst. Like, what, what could could he do to her in this situation? Yet then the soldier asks to borrow her cell phone and he uses it to call his girlfriend. And it's just this little everyday human moment that, you know, is the formation of of a real and healthy relationship and just strikes them as two people who can obviously get along like anyone else can so offside had to be my number one it's literally breaking into the boys club that's organized sports yeah
1: it really is i am really jealous of that pick josh didn't even occur to me and absolutely belongs if not in the top five certainly in consideration my number one a more boring pedestrian pick In fact, a redundant one as well. I will see your Ripley and raise you a private Vasquez. I'm going with both of them. Both of those characters stand out to me from James Cameron's Aliens. And yes, I considered alien as well, but think aliens, just like you said, because of the military angle makes it a little bit more appropriate as a breaking up the boys club movie. There are other women in the film in this squad, Corporal Farrow, Corporal Dietrich, but this is obviously Ripley's franchise and Jeanette Goldstein's Vasquez is arguably the toughest Marine of the bunch. And there is a great line that does reference her gender and how she carries herself at one point Hudson, who is played by Bill Paxton. So memorably says, Hey Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? And she quickly retorts, no, have you? There's another really good scene where two of the women are talking to each other, Vasquez and Pharaoh, and they see Ripley who they've just been introduced to. And Vasquez says, who's snow white? (laughs) <laughs> She's supposed to be some kind of consultant. Apparently she saw an alien once. So the women, they do have some company. The two I singled out, but there are few movies more testosterone filled than aliens. Hudson might be enough just on his own. His raw, unbridled idiocy really is sufficient on his own. But then you add in Michael Bean, Al Matthews, Rico Ross, Mark Rolston. Certainly, I think Cameron is commenting on masculinity through the portrayal of some of these characters. And I covered in my top five rescue scenes back in February how resourceful and relatively smooth under pressure Ripley is compared to pretty much all the other men in the film. But you do add in the motherhood angle you mentioned with Ripley essentially adopting Newt and taking this action genre, what is thought of as this man's genre, that, Cameron and Weaver and Goldstein have completely turned on its head. So for all those reasons, did have to go with Aliens as my somewhat obvious but definite number one pick. Those are our top five. Breaking up the Boys Club movies. Josh, what about any honorable mentions?
0: Well, you brought up His Girl Friday, and that was probably my number six but it's been on a number of previous lists and it's a perennial favorite of michael phillips so usually like to leave that one for him (laughs) well let me say his girl friday excluded by me in the penalty box because michael phillips penalty box even if he's not here it applies to us as well okay good to know zero dark 30 i did think about mad max fury road as well silence of the lambs and a couple of other james cameron movies terminator and terminator 2 you could argue, works somewhat this way. Also from the Disney Pixar canon, Mulan and Brave. Hmm. Mulan. You're a Mulan fan as well, Josh. Been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, I remember
1: liking it. Well, for me, some of the ones that have already been said, like Alien, Aaron Brockovich, The Grandmaster, The Hidden Fortress, a really good pick I saw on Twitter. The Kurosawa film, Bound, I think does apply as well. The film from the Wachowski- siblings then the wachowski brothers mccabe and mrs miller you can make a case for with julie christie coming into presbyterian church and then i saw a few other ones on facebook some other good ideas movies i really like like broadcast news and winter's bone though now that i say it out loud maybe i should have given a little bit more consideration to winter's bone i think a lot of the qualities we've singled out in the female characters who make up our picks that applies to jennifer lawrence in that movie as well oh jackie brown I don't know how much it works. I saw that one come up a lot. saw it come up, and I like the film. Not as much as you, because you love it and think it's best. Tarantino's best, exactly. True Grit, the Coen brothers from 2010. And what about, I'm shocked this didn't make your top five. I thought you liked to go comedies. Anchorman, Christina Applegate. Yeah. She's really breaking up the
0: boys' club in that newsroom. She is, but not only is it a very small part of the movie, it's probably the least funny part. What? Yeah, Christina Applegate. I like Christina Applegate. Treasure. I, well, that might be a little strong. I do like her, though. Well,
1: tell us how much you like Christina Applegate and Anchorman. Send us your breaking up the boys club picks or any
0: other feedback about the show to feedback at filmspotting Or you can leave us a voicemail at three one two two six four zero seven four four. We're also on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on film, and of course. We're at Facebook.com slash filmspotting.
1: Over at our website, you can find ten years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Also at filmspotting.net. Take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll among the most hotly contested deathmatch polls we've ever had, Alien versus Blade Runner. You can only pick one. And if you haven't already, please check out our sister podcast, Film Spotting SVU, a biweekly podcast hosted by Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer, focusing on the world of online movies. More info is at filmspottingsvu.com. Out this week on VOD, Finders Keepers, this is a documentary about the rightful owner of a severed human foot. There's apparently a lot of buzz about this one. Our friend Matt Singer of SVU fame says, get a leg up on your fellow cinephiles and seek this one out early. That's the
0: Matt Singer I know and love.
1: That's not going to draw any (laughs) listeners to your show, Matt. That's really just not going to work at all. Out in limited release, 99 Homes, the new one from Ramin Barani with Michael Shannon, Andrew Garfield, and Laura Dern. Our friend David Ehrlich said it's Ramin Barani's Magic mic. I've been waiting for that. (laughs) I think we all have. Mississippi Grind from Half Nelson and Sugar directors Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck also opening. That's with Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds. A couple others were mentioning prophets pray a documentary about cult leader warren jeffs from amy berg and the walk the robert zemeckis film much talked about by a couple of us here michael phillips
0: included on our fall movie preview that is opening in imax only i think i'm gonna go see that tomorrow so i might be able to give you a report next week i know we're not reviewing it well at least not next week but we might down the road i think we're almost gonna have to talk about the walk all right good We'll have to
1: look at that film-spotting schedule, the always-changing film-spotting schedule. Out in wide release, Sicario is expanding nationwide. We do both recommend it. And The Martian is opening, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Matt Damon. Next week on the show, we will review The Martian. And the top five, yet again, is TBD. Sam had a pretty good idea. Back-to-back movies, going back to Ridley Scott and Alien and Blade Runner. I didn't even know that, or it didn't occur to me until I saw him... Write it in an email that Alien and Blade Runner were, in fact, made
0: back-to-back. That's, that's a pretty good duo. So are there enough similar situations out there where we could come up with our own top five? I don't know. We will have to research it and find
1: out, or our listeners can research it for us. Please tell us what to do. I always like that do. option. I love that option. And our wonderful associate producer, Candace Griffiths, also said that isn't there something about innovation or creative problem-solving with scenes or movies or characters that would seem to work Perfectly. MacGyver movies. MacGyver movies. That was what I was going to say. It's our top five MacGyver movies. Oh, well, it sounds nice. It does sound nice. Again, In theory, maybe. In practice, maybe not. We
0: do look forward to any suggestions you can give us. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is by Leigh Boucherets. It comes from the new album, A Raw Youth. More information is at leighboucherets.net. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
1: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore.
0: Goodbye. one I really should be practicing, Denis Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Did you see
1: this week, um, someone wrote in, correcting us again, they're probably behind, but also yeah. someone else said, hey, you guys should really try Forvo.com. <laughs> and and so I, I know I've been there before, but I went to Forvo and they have a Villeneuve pronunciation and it's a French male. And of course, how does he pronounce it? I'm hoping it's Villeneuve. It's not. No, it's not. It's well, the... Denis Villeneuve. That's where I probably yeah, got it. It adds a third syllable. That's probably where I got it. And he's a Let's, French male. I'd, lo- he's I'd he's love I'd love to bring that up. But as I'm not, one. Yeah, no. there you go.
0: <laughs> We're gonna stick with Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Villeneuve. Perfect. <clears throat>